Well, I mentioned last week that we're looking for a solution for our meeting space. So one thing we did today is stack in as many chairs as we could, and looks like we're still pretty full. We praise God for that. Uh, Glenn and I had a good meeting with the hotel management here this past week, and we're so grateful for them. They're, they have been so kind to us over the past 15 months here. They've bent over backwards uh, for us, and they've expressed great delight in having us here. And so I just want to thank you for being a good witness here on Friday mornings, for talking to and for thanking the hotel employees uh, when you come across them, for building friendships with the security guards and the other staff. I'm really thankful for the witness of Christ this church has had here in this hotel, so much so that they love having us here. Well, the management is working to see if they can rearrange uh, their wedding setup in the bigger ballroom next door. Uh, so that they can do it literally overnight on Thursday night instead of on Fridays. We would get a huge portion, most of the ballroom. It would give us about 300 plus more seats. Uh, And Lord willing, if things work out, we might be able to move in there in a few weeks. So we think that would probably be our best solution. So please keep that in your prayers uh, for us. We hope to find something out about that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, But it is a blessing to have freedom to meet here in Dubai We're grateful for the leadership of our rulers and their generosity. You know, obviously, when you look around us, we have brothers and sisters in surrounding nations who don't enjoy the same freedom that we enjoy here. I mean, earlier we prayed for Syria in our prayer of petition. And over the past several months, we prayed for several countries experiencing difficulty. You know, our prayer times, like we've done this morning, there are important times to us as a church. That's why we gather throughout the country on Tuesdays in the afternoons to pray with whomever we're with, whether it's at work or in our neighborhood. And then on Fridays, we pause uh, to pray corporately. We pause because there's nothing more exciting that we can do together than to pray and talk to the living and true God. And so we do that. We pray for our rulers, we pray for other churches, and we pray for the world. And this morning, we prayed for Syria, and we've prayed for other nations going through difficulty, facing government uprisings, facing persecution. In Syria alone, over the past 18 months, 30,000 men, women, and children have been killed. More than half of those have died in the past five months. 20,000 of those are civilians. The uprising against the president began in March in 2011, just as peaceful protests, but they have degraded into civil war. We've seen other uprisings in places like Egypt and in Bahrain. We've seen unrest in other neighboring nations. In another country, we have Christian friends who've been with us here in our gatherings at Redeemer who are now in prison for their faith still today. Others of us face challenges back in our home country, or maybe even here in the UAE. These challenges may be violent, or they may not be. Perhaps you've been passed over for jobs because of your race, or because of following Christ. Perhaps you've been pressured to lie, or cheat, or steal, or disrespect your authorities because of the justification, well, that's just the way we do it here. And so as a Christian, how do we live in a world like this? As a citizen of heaven, how do we live as a citizen of this earth? As those whose heavenly home is being prepared for us by Jesus himself, how do we live in an earthly home? What should our lives look like? 
Well, that's the question that Peter now turns to over the next couple of chapters in 1 Peter. Next week, we'll look at how we honor God in the workplace. And then in December, we'll take a couple weeks to look at how we honor God in our marriage. But this week, we look at how we honor God and how we live in relation to our governing authorities. So if you have your Bible, please turn almost to the end of your Bibles again to the book of 1 Peter. If you hit 1 John, you've gone too far. You'll find it after the book of James. We spent the last several weeks looking at Peter's instructions on how to live the expat life. And this morning we'll read chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and we'll answer the question, how do we live, live on earth as citizens of heaven? How do we live on earth as citizens of heaven? And Peter will give us two things that should characterize our lives. And those two things will serve as our brief outline this morning. First, we should live as sojourners. Second, we should live as subjects. Sojourners and subjects. Short and sweet and straight from the text. Well, first, we should live as sojourners. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You remember last week, we saw that as Christians, we're living stones and a royal priesthood. Peter was showing us our relationship to other Christians. The emphasis now shifts to the relationship believers have with the world. And immediately, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles, expats in the world. You know, a sojourner is someone who's away from home. And Peter has mentioned this twice already, back in chapter 1, verse 1. And in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, True Christians are aliens and exiles and sojourners and strangers on this earth. Now here he mentions it for a third time. Now I'm no literary mastermind, but I think Peter thinks this is really important. He wants us to get it. He wants us to see it and to understand it. He wants it branded on our souls that this place isn't our home. See, back in Peter's time, you had something called city-states. That's how the empire was put together. It was a city, but you also had a nation. So Rome was a city. It was a city-state. You had privileges as citizens, regardless of where you lived, regardless of whether you left Rome or not. And so we see Paul was a citizen of Rome. We know that he was put in prison in the book of Philippians there in the city of Philippi, And he's not given a trial, and so he decides to speak up and says, hey, maybe you guys don't know this, but I'm a citizen of Rome. I have the privilege of being treated as such and getting a trial. Well, this is what Peter is trying to show us here, reminding us that we're sojourners. Peter wants us to see as Christians that our citizenship has been transferred from here to heaven. And those rules and those privileges we live under here on earth, even though we're not there yet. Now, when you think this world is your home, when you live as if this world is your home, it controls you. 
To live as aliens and strangers is to understand that this world is not your home. Tim Keller has said, the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are. I think it's true. It's what Peter here wants to make clear. He wants us to know that we're sojourners. He's constantly reminding us of that truth. We need to be reminded that God caused us to be born again and heaven awaits. Remember, the Bible never calls us to act without being driven first by theology. We've said it before that that's why at Redeemer we don't skip over theology. We don't skip hard doctrines like election or regeneration or sanctification. We don't diminish their importance by saying they're irrelevant or too controversial. The Bible describes how we are driven by our theology. See, what we think about who God is, that is our theology, it fuels our worship. Now, for example, if our theology says that God exists merely to give us a happy life, then what we do is we turn the Bible into a checklist of items. We say, well, if we do this or do that or do that, then we'll be happy. Now, Peter is describing here a God-centered theology. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write this letter as Holy Scripture so that we could see that we are aliens here, that we are looking forward to a lasting country, God's kingdom. And because God loves us so much that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Because Christ died for us, he has prepared a place for us in heaven. Because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Because of all of that, we are to live as aliens. Because this isn't where you belong. The world isn't our obsession because it isn't our possession. No, we have a better possession and a lasting one. See, instead of being absorbed with this world, we are obsessed with our home country, heaven. And we live in preparation for that place and look forward to our eternal inheritance. See, it's how you think of yourself that generally determines how you live your life. What you think about yourself, who you think you are is very important. It determines the way we live our lives. And before Peter says anything else here, again, he says, remember... This is not your home. And instead of making this our home, Peter continues there and says, We abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we're not consumed with what we can get from this world because it's got nothing on heaven. Now it's interesting there, the phrase, the passions of the flesh, that you see there in verse 11, actually has the idea of not wanting something evil necessarily, but an over-desire for anything in this world. Now, some translations take that to mean sin, and that's not necessarily wrong, because an over-desire is sin, but the actual word for sin is not there in the original language. The word sinful is not there. Now, what Peter is saying is that we can have an inordinate desire for things in this world. It's a desire that's taken over. The things that war against your soul are not necessarily blatantly sinful. You know, when we think of sin, we think of breaking rules, don't we? Embezzling funds, sexual immorality, drinking too much. But this isn't all Peter's talking about. An over-desire is looking to something that is good, and then you make it too important for you. This is an entangling sin whose roots grab you and govern you. Our over-desires are revealed in many ways. I mean, take bitterness, for example. 
Over-desiring something good is one reason we get so bitter. We get upset with our spouse or our boss or our teacher because they fail to do something that we want them to do for us. We're crushed in those moments that they fail us. Our desire for their approval and love has governed us and has become our everything. Now, there's a war going on for the affections of our soul. That's what Peter's saying here. See, if you say, I've got to have blank or else then that thing, whatever it is, has captured your soul. Anything you say you've got to have to make you happy has your soul by the neck. It's waging war against your soul. It's trying to capture it and take it down, and it will kill you. Now, oftentimes our biggest problem is not a desire for forbidden fruit, but an over-desire for good things that become main things and thereby become destructive things. Now, do you love money so much that you would rather lose your soul than be poor? Do you love your reputation so much that you'd rather lose your soul than be humble? Now, friends, we need to recognize this in ourselves. We need to know our sinful tendencies. I mean, just think for a minute right now in your seat. Is there anything in my life that is waging war against my soul? Is there anything waging war against my soul this morning? I mean, have you ever sat on the ground, maybe at some gathering, where you sat on the ground and had your legs crossed? sure you have, or maybe you sat in an awkward position, and eventually, because of the pressure on your leg, one of your legs got numb. You know, it's kind of crazy, you try to get up and try to walk, and you look really funny because your leg's all tingling, it's numb, you cut off circulation. Well, some of you are doing that to your souls. You've allowed things to strangle your soul and to cut off circulation and life to it. Now, Jesus said, what does it profit you to gain the whole world but to lose your soul? Now, friends, this isn't easy. We're not in heaven yet. We're sojourners, and so there are difficulties. That's why Peter in our text has to tell us as Christians to abstain. This means it's still possible for us as Christians to sin. When you become a Christian, your life doesn't become perfect. I mean, Paul in Romans calls this body a body of sin and death. It's like a bed of live coals, and if anything dead touches it, it ignites. Well, becoming a Christian doesn't mean a life of ease. Now, it would be pretty easy for us to grow a big church here. We could grow a huge church by saying, come to Jesus because everything will be all right if you do. You know, come to Jesus and you will get a new car, you will get a new job. Come to Jesus and you will magically get new bank accounts. New bank accounts with your name filled with Durham's if you come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus and your life will be okay. No pain, no suffering, just glory and glamour. But see, friends, when I became a Christian, things didn't get easier. Things got more complicated. See, before I became a Christian, I went along with the group. I went along with the world. But when I became a Christian, I knew that there's this war between the flesh and the spirit. I knew of this war in a new way. No, every day has become a spiritual battle. 
There's a war I'm fighting in my soul. One of my first pastors, a man that I admired and still admire greatly, once said something in his home. I was just a 17-year-old teenager sitting there, and he said something that startled me that I've never forgotten. He said to a group of youth that he feels very capable of committing adultery against his wife. He feels that anytime he goes on a business trip or a ministry trip, he is capable of committing adultery. I remember just being startled. I mean, this man epitomized faithfulness to me. He epitomized godliness and holiness. He was my hero, and here he is telling us that he is capable of committing adultery. He says he knows he's capable, so he prays. He prays hard beforehand. He prays during his trips. He gets other brothers in Christ to pray for him, that he will be faithful. He does other things. He turns off the internet, unplugs the television. He doesn't entangle in unhealthy conversations with the opposite sex. Now, friends, here's the issue as we look at this. Until we understand that there is a war in our souls, then we will remain self-deceived. Until we realize that we're no different than my first pastor, then we are deceived. See, until you understand that you're a sinner and that you're capable of anything, you are in the path of a tornado with nowhere to go. Until you realize that you are the biggest problem in your life, you are in the line of fire. It's code red and your life is flashing before your eyes. Well, how do we fight back? Well, it's exactly what Peter's been telling us. By the power of the Spirit, we must cultivate a mindset of expats. Remembering that this isn't our home. Remembering that we are sojourners, that our citizenship is not of this earth, but in heaven. And that we are just passing through. And so we abstain for the sake of our own souls, but not just for the sake of our souls only. Look again at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's no new sentence beginning here in the Greek text, for this verse is the positive counterpart to what we've just looked at in verse 11. Abstain, verse 11, here in verse 12, maintain. Maintain good conduct. See, believers in Peter's time were viewed with suspicion and hostility because they didn't conform to the way of the pagan lives. It's the same for us today. And the hope is that unbelievers will glorify God because they see our good deeds. Now, on the platform of such credibility, our personal witness, it has an impact. Observing the exceptional life of such believers, some will believe, some will be saved, and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the day of visitation is an Old Testament concept referring to occasions when God visited mankind for either judgment or blessing. The reference to glorifying God here suggests that the salvation of Gentiles is in view in this verse. I mean, typically in the New Testament, people glorify God or give him glory by believing. In the New Testament, this word for visit is actually formed from the root word bishop. And the concept of the bishop in the New Testament is that of a visitor. It has the idea of a military community when from time to time, the general would drop in unannounced to visit his troops. If the troops were battle ready, then the commander there, the military general, would 
praise the troops. If they were ill-prepared, then they would receive the judgment of the general. Well, that metaphor is used to describe the day of visitation, the day when our heavenly bishop will come. So Peter's confident that our witness matters. He says that some unbelievers will be saved as a result of being drawn to Christ because of the godliness of his followers. Now, the unbelievers may revile Christians, but when they notice in us, when they see something different in us, it awakens them to something more. Peter says some will repent and be saved because our actions will line up with the words that we've preached to them. And they'll be saved. And as a result, their salvation will glorify God. Your life, as well as mine, especially in tough times, as we face slander, as we face persecution and opposition, can be an influence in an unbeliever's interest in eternal life. It's really a breathtaking thought, isn't it? Now, I love the story of a man named Henry Stanley. He was a London-based newspaper reporter who was sent to Africa to find David Livingstone. Livingstone was an explorer. He was a preacher. And they had lost track of him back in England. You may have heard those famous words, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Well, apparently, Stanley uttered those words upon finding Livingstone in Africa. Now, there's a great difference between these two men. Livingstone was a devout Christian who wanted to see the supremacy of Christ spread to the world, whereas Stanley was an atheist. He even wrote in the paper that he felt that he was the biggest atheist throughout all of London. But he writes, after being with Livingstone for a few months in Africa, after being with this man for months and seeing his inspiration and how he carries himself alone, I wondered who this old man was that carried his Bible, lived with gentleness, piety, zeal, and earnestness as he went about his business. And then Stanley said these words. He said, I was converted by him, though he had not even tried. Now Stanley will glorify God in the day of visitation because he watched Livingstone's deeds and they matched up with the message that Livingstone had preached to him. Livingstone's actions backed up the gospel message, which, if believed, saves. So, friends, here's some questions for you this morning. Here's here's the first one. Who are the unbelievers whom God has put in your life so that they might watch an audio-visual presentation of the gospel message through your life? Who is watching you so that they can see a picture of someone who falls in line with the truths of the gospel? Who has God placed in your path simply to watch you? Who's watching your marriage? Who's watching your business, your relationships? Who's listening to how you treat your boss or your employees? How you treat those that owe money to you? Or toward those that you owe money to. Men, how do you speak to women? Women, how do you speak to men? Do you speak poorly of people from other countries or look down on other nationalities? See, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus told all who would seriously follow him, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
This is the essence of what Peter's telling us in this passage as he exhorted his readers to live godly lives, which is the single most effective foundation for making the gospel message attractive and believable. Now, friends, we are sojourners. We live for heaven because this life is just a passing through. But we also live as subjects. We live as sojourners. We also live as subjects. That's the second thing Peter tells us about how to live as citizens of heaven in the UAE. We live as subjects. Look at verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The central theme of this section is found in the first word, this command to be subject. Other translations might use the word submit. There might not be a more unpopular teaching than this, than this passage, because we don't like to submit, do we? We see that in the first pages of our Bible. Our first father, Adam, was a rebel. He was a lawbreaker. He didn't submit to God. And it's clear from Scripture and our own experience that we live with the same sin propensity within us. It's our very nature. Our first instinct is to rebel against authority. And it comes from pride. We, we think that we could do better than those in authority. Students think they know better than their teachers. Employees think that they could do better than their boss. Citizens think that they have great ideas, greater ideas than even the government. And we think to ourselves, if I could simply rule the world, then there would finally be peace on earth. And so we don't like this teaching. We don't like that we're subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or to the governor or to the president. But see, authority is a good thing. When you play a game, it's good to have rules. Stoplights and stop signs at roundabouts, though not always obeyed, are a good thing to keep us alive. Imagine if musicians didn't submit to the conductor then it would be mayhem in the orchestra. And we can't function without authority. In Romans 13:1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. No authority has been instituted by God, and it's for our good. And we see the purpose of government right in these verses. Peter says it's for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do what is right. Now, even the most oppressive governments in some way hold evil in check to some extent. I mean, think about when Peter's writing this. He's probably writing in the age of Nero. Nero was hardly a benevolent ruler. He was a murderer of Christians. And yet Peter says there's a role that he plays as a God-ordained authority and for Christ's sake, even then we are to honor the government. Well, let me tell you what this looks like for Christians. 
This looks like you and I obeying the laws that we don't necessarily like. We don't drink underage. We pay any taxes or fees. We follow the rules set by the governing authorities in the country that we live in. Even if we deem them to be different from our home country or deem them to be silly or outdated. And simply put, as Christians, we are to be outstanding citizens. But as a Christian, we do more than just obey the law. It goes beyond this. Now, the reason Christians ought to submit to authority is that such conduct stops the mouths of the gospel's critics. It is the will of God for Christians to engage in doing right by respecting authority, Peter says, in order to silence them. The word silence here means to restrain, to muzzle, to make speechless. It means the gagging or stopping of someone's mouth as to keep that person utterly incapable of making any kind of response. Now, integrity, obedience, purity, love are all effective tools to muzzle the enemies of Christianity. Now, Paul commanded Titus to tell this to the new believers in Crete. He said, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Does this way of life characterize your life here in the UAE? Are you courteous? Do you conduct yourself respectfully, speaking evil of no one? Or does your life discredit the gospel by your speech and behavior? Do you speak well of the city? And not just with flippant comments, but have you specifically affirmed those in leadership, those governing authorities here in the UAE? You know, those that hand you your driver's license, those that hand you car registration, those that hand you a visa at immigration, any government office. You know, it's easy to say nice things just to get what we want, but if you've gone above and beyond to be thankful and loving towards those in our authority, or do you complain more about the rulers of Dubai? Well, let me put it this way. Do you complain more about the rules in Dubai than pray for the rulers of Dubai? Do you complain or do you pray? Because as a people of God, as citizens here in this place, we should be a people praying regularly for His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum and his family. We should be praying for His Highness Humayd bin Rashid Al Nuaymi, the ruler of Ajman, and His Highness Sheikh Dr. Sultan III bin Mohammed Al Qasimi of Sharjah. And we should seek creative ways to serve the city. And Peter says in verse 16 that we are to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And we should use our freedom to be servants of God. Now, if you think about it, that's a rather odd statement, isn't it? Because what it's saying is that we are free in Christ. We have freedom under God, and yet Peter says, so, okay, you're free, now live as servants. Literally live as bond slaves to God. Because you are free, enslave yourself to God. Now Peter is saying we are to go above and beyond in loving and serving our earthly authorities because we have willingly and freely put ourselves in loving bondage to the ultimate authority. 
And so we serve. Now the body of Christians at this church should be the best citizens in this country. We should be the best law-abiding, caring, serving, gracious people to walk on the sands of the United Arab Emirates. We should appreciate this place and be radically committed to the good of our cities. To let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, we are to honor our authorities. Now, if you're here this morning and you work in the government, we are so thankful for you. If you're here, you're doing an important job. Maybe you work in the ruler's court or in another government office. We just want to stop and just thank you for the work that you do in our nation. What you do in your job is in part reflecting God's own authority as you work to keep peace and to promote justice in this country. You help keep peace in this country. You allow us to be here so we can provide for our families. Thank you for your tireless hours. Thank you for your service in the face of difficulty, in the face of complaints, in the face of opposition. And forgive us for those times when we as Christians have been unkind or uncaring towards you. Now, friends, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. We praise God for you, and we will continue to pray for you as the days go by. Now, fellow Christians sitting here this morning, we are to live as citizens of heaven here, which means we are to be model citizens in this place. We are to go out of our way for the good of the city. We are to go above and beyond to glorify God. Well, all this naturally brings up the question probably in your mind, are there ever times for disobedience? Well, we see in verse 13 that this submission to governing authorities is not mindless or pointless. Believers are to submit. Why? Well, for the Lord's sake. And we have an implication here that the ruling power should be resisted if commands were issued that violate the Lord's will. I mean, it's impossible to imagine that one would obey commands that contravene God's dictates for the Lord's sake. You wouldn't disobey the Lord for his sake. Well, there are some biblical examples we could look at as well of civil disobedience. We remember the story back in Exodus with the midwives. You know, the government instituted genocide and told the midwives to murder these Hebrew children. The midwives, they refused and obeyed God rather than the government. And God blessed the midwives for their obedience to him. Similarly, Peter himself, the author of this book, was involved in rightful civil disobedience. In Acts chapter 5, he's, and the apostles were told to stop preaching the gospel of Christ. So there's this conflict between God and the government because Jesus had just told them to go forth into all the nations, into all the world, preaching Christ and him crucified. And the government said, no, this is now illegal. And they determined, no, we will obey God, not man. We will follow God, not government. We'll preach the gospel even if they incarcerate us, even if they persecute us, even if they punish us, even if they execute us. And that's exactly what happened. 
Even Peter himself was crucified. History tells us he was crucified upside down for sharing his faith. That being said, those examples are for the greater good of God's kingdom. And you, Christian, may be faced with something like Peter faced. It may not happen here, but perhaps back in your birth country or some other place. And so the word of God remains our authority. In instances where the government tells you to do something that God told you not to do, let me be clear. God is the one to be obeyed. Well, if you picked up a bulletin this morning, you can turn with me to page 16. You'll see there, printed in its entirety, our statement of faith. These are the beliefs that we hold to as a church. This is what we ascribe to. This is what, if you come to the membership weekend or tonight, we're going to go over. We're going to explain what we hold to. And if you see there, number 15 is our statement on what we believe regarding church government. Let me just read that to you. Point number 15. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society. And that officials are to be prayed for and consciously honored. They are to be obeyed except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the Prince of the Kings of the earth. Now right there in our statement, it says that we are to obey government, we are to pray for the government unless it conflicts with God and his authority. I mean, you you might remember that Jesus told the Pharisees and Herodians to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Then he continues and says, you are to render to God the things that are God's. See, while Jesus commanded our obedience to government, he undermined its final authority with that phrase. So we've seen that authority of government was established by God, that he is the higher authority. Therefore, we know that all things are God's. There is an authority above all earthly authority, and we are finally accountable to him, to the God of the universe. Well, the Bible tells us that all of us will take account not to the government of this country or to the government of our home country, but we will all give account to the one true God who created us, who will judge us as a supreme authority of both heaven and earth. It is he that is perfectly good and just and the only trustworthy ruler. See, all religions point to this need of justice and authority in God, but only Christianity also points us to a Savior. All religions tell us that we need to be good to earn God's approval, but the problem is, friends, we can't. Each one of us fail. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of his glory. Our good works are filthy rags before God. Our hands are tied behind our backs. We are hopeless. We are dead. But the Bible tells us that through Christ we can be saved, not for peace merely here on earth, but for all eternity. Now friends, if you've never submitted your life to God, then you are running and rejecting the authority of authorities. God made you. He sustains your life. And his son, Jesus Christ, has offered his life on the cross to save yours. 
No, to subject yourself to his authority and to enjoy an eternity in his kingdom. You must repent of your sin. That's that desire to run your life your own way. It's the desire, it's the thought that you believe you could save yourself. No, we repent of that. We turn from that and we believe in Christ to save us. Now, friends, if you haven't believed in Jesus to save you, come to Jesus today. Become a sojourner together with us as we await a heavenly city, our true and eternal home. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray that we would live as sojourners in this place. That we would abstain from fleshly desires. That we would abstain from over-desires. God, that we wouldn't make good things the ultimate thing. That we would kill anything that wages war on our souls. That we would subject ourselves to our earthly rulers. And yet, Father, we pray that we would submit ourselves most of all to you, our ultimate authority. Oh, Lord, we pray that many might see our lives, that many might see our actions, our words, how we carry ourselves in this country, that many might see how we love the rulers, how we love our authority, how we love each other that they might see our lives and glorify you on the day of visitation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.